Welcome to the world this week. For the past uh, seven days, dissected with a group of very special journalists here in the studio. Let's introduce them without any further delay. Vivian Watt from Time, great to see you as always. On the other side of the studio, they're not necessarily against, but we'll see Matthew Dalton from the Wall Street Journal. Great to see you, sir. Mm -hmm. Going on to the other side, we have from Die Zeit, Matthias Krupa. Thank you for coming, sir. Thank you. And last but definitely not least, and we've worked together many times via a satellite link, but never face to face. Great to see you, Mark Burley from AFP. Howdy. Thank you all for coming in. Let's start with the release then of the hostages by Hamas this afternoon. The deal had been in the offing all week, a truce for four days, a release of 50 hostages in exchange for some 150 Palestinians. Let's get the thoughts then of our panel. Viv, I'll start with you. We've got, I think it's 24 hostages out. There'll be 39 Palestinian prisoners going the other way. And clearly, there'll be some people who are happy, some people who will still be extremely anxious. It is a difficult, fraught situation. Well... Of those 24, of course, nine of them are not nine. That's, I believe, correct. Or no, 11, 11. of them so it's, are, it's are not Israeli. 13 Israeli, 11 foreign workers. Foreign workers, yeah. almost all Thai, I believe. All Thai, one Filipino. Filipino. Yeah. Um, I mean, what's uh, notable about this first batch, at least, is that there were no um, dual citizens among them. And that's obviously something of a ploy by Hamas to keep its leverage um, with foreign countries. I mean, you have a number of Americans being held hostage. We believe some French mm -hmm. citizens. Um, and if it appears that day after day after day they won't release them, there's going to be a tremendous sort of, I think, build-up of tensions um, with these countries and... There'll be a lot of, uh, obviously, negotiations over how to get them out. And what's also notice, notable to me um, is we've made such a big deal of these 13 Israelis. Mm. There are still 100 and... 190, two, perhaps, well, 200, no, perhaps. 200, yeah. more than 200 mm. left. Um, it's just an astonishing number. Uh, so I think it's going to be a long road ahead. Absolutely remarkable. Uh, Mark Burley, can I bring you in from the, from the Brussels correspondent of AFP? That's what I should have said in the full introduction. I apologise, sir. In terms of what we're seeing, I mean, clearly there's been all manner of negotiations going on. We've had the US involved, we've had Egypt involved, Qatar playing a really key role. One wonders, there must be so much room here for some kind of an error, some kind of a, a falling down of this negotiation well, going forward. We're, yeah, we've already seen that, you know, we all expected this to happen yesterday and it was uh, already delayed for for logistical reasons, they said. I mean, you know, we're not getting many details on it. What, one point, though, is I think Qatar said some of the Israelis released are dual citizens. So I'm not I mean, it's a fast-moving situation. We're still going to have to check. I understand it to be mainly women and children, but again, we have to see where we are. We've, we've seen in, in, in the previous hour of broadcasting, we've seen, seen faces of, of, of those who've been released, and they all look like either it's a mixture of grandmothers and kids. It's, it's an incredibly sad situation, but, isn't it? I mean, it? that's the way it goes, as I understand yeah. it, with the ICRC involved. Well, basically, with the, these sort of exchanges, the first yeah. thing is a, a test, and in a way, it's, it should be kind of like the easier consignment. The, 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 mm. the, the, the people who you would expect to see released, who have no reason, I mean, no one should be held mm. point blank, sure. but, uh, you know, the, these would 
be perhaps at the, the top of your imagination or your list of uh, who you would expect to see as um, victims to be released. Uh, given that the, the negotiation of this was essentially worked out by CIA, CIA chief and Mossad chief in mm. Qatar, it's all black box stuff. I mean, you know, how many details are we going to get? This is all going to come out in the days ahead when journalists hopefully can speak to um, giving space, of course, to people who've gone through this sort of a deal, but the ones who are willing to speak to journalists when we can find out a little bit more of perhaps what went on. I, I think we've seen from previous hostage situations that quite often even the hostages themselves are very unaware of logistical stuff or anything that went on. They're, they're greeted in the sort of protocol air situation, mm. but they're not always aware of... What it took it to get be, the It must be amazing to try and put yourself in their shoes and think about what they're going through and rock and stuff. Mark, thank you. We've got two people called Matthew, I've just realised. Matthew and Matthias. <laughs> it's, it's, it's great to see you. I'm going to start with the man from Desire. <laughs> with the Matthias. Great, great to see you. Great to see you, Matthias. Um, this situation, give us a, a, a... How are you viewing it? What's the kind of... How, how are your readers viewing this situation? I think uh, it was it was already said before that the situation is very difficult to read to be to to be honest of course it's uh, first and foremost uh, each and every hostage which is released is a good news in a in a in a in a tunnel of many bad news uh, over the last uh, over the last weeks but the but where it leads to uh, whether both sides stick to the stick to the deal um Normally, you does a deal like that to build up some confidence, but confidence in, sit in this situation yeah. is really weird because there is no confidence, neither on the Israeli side, neither, neither on the other side. So, where does it really needs? Where does it really leads to? And um, I'm, to be honest, the, the 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 foreign workers which are released, I'm not really, I'm not even sure whether they are counted among the 50s which should be released. One of the many questions that are still outstanding. a particular yes. deal uh, which mm. Qatar did with the, with the Hamas. So, so even with the counting, it's, diff it's, diff it's difficult. We understand the tie negotiated with the Iranians. That's what we understand. Okay. But, okay. That's, but that's a version, you know, that... But it would mean they are not part of the 50s. Indeed, 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 okay. indeed, indeed, okay. indeed. So, <sighs> which already shows how difficult to grab the situation is. So. It's incredibly... Tricky the situation to say the least, Matthew, isn't it? The sort of the whole issue about, you know, if you just look back through recent history or go back as far as you want with the Middle East, anything could happen. Well, I'm thinking uh, about an event in uh, re recent Israeli history, which is the kidnapping of Gilad Shalit, the Israeli soldier. 2006. Um, right, who was held for five years and ultimately freed um, in exchange for thousands of mm. Palestinian prisoners. One soldier for thousands of prisoners. So given the, the precedent... October 7th. I, I didn't know, but that's, yeah, that's just remarkable. Yeah. So you think, you're thinking about the people who are still um, in Hamas's custody, um, the men, mm. and even more than that, the soldiers who were kidnapped. Um, what is the possible deal that is going to free, you know, hundreds of people? If, if previously it was one soldier for thousands of Palestinian prisoners, how many Palestinian prisoners have to be freed? Uh, from their perspective to, to, to free those people. And so you just think about this was the kind of easiest part of the, the deal, to the, the solution for, the, for these hostages to, to be done. What lies ahead is, is going to be very difficult. And um, 
it's it's frightening to think um, what it could take to get um, the rest of the people released. Indeed, and uh, as you say, talking about the Gilad Shalit story of uh, 2006 to 2011, I think it was, and as you say, it was over 1,500 prisoners that were swapped for him. Mm. Hamas clearly thinking they've got leverage to get even more prisoners out of jail. Is that what you're saying? It's, that's a situation, man. I mean, they do have leverage. They have sure. enormous leverage. And, and you, you also think about what that event, um, what kind of precedent that set and the incentive it set for Hamas to, to do this. I mean, there's some speculation that that was kind of one of the main mm goals of this operation the attack was would not was not necessarily to kill lots of people that uh, that probably was part of it as well but also to take as many hostages as possible to use them as leverage to free as many of their people in in israeli prisons as they could and particularly uh, hamas people from prison as i understand it that is one of the strategic objectives and with the israeli soldiers that are taken right right exactly and and but a lot of the people who have been freed are actually they're not hamas operatives they're they're um i think they're from other militant groups there there could be just as I understand it, this, this 39 is mostly women and... and women and, and children. And mm. children, the, the, well, the children is 16 to 18-year-olds. I mean, that's... I, I'd, I'd call them kids, but there you go. Yeah, yeah. we yeah. call them kids around the world. But um, I mean, you know, a lot of these... I don't know these particular cases, but we do know that there are a high number of administrative detentions in, the, in mm -hmm. Israeli hands. And these are people who haven't been charged, who are right. held wouldn't be surprising to see that perhaps that sort of, was this first tranche. Or, or people arrested for like stone throwing, very kind of minor things. But I think that there has been a list of people that may be released and they do include uh, like actual members of Hamas. I, I, I'm not sure about that. Maybe I'm and again, we're still yeah. scrabbling. Yeah. Well, this, 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 is, this is the thing, isn't it? Because we don't yet know how this is going to I develop. Mean, we have not come to the real tough stuff of this mm. negotiations yet. This is... You know, this is the easy stuff to, of course, to release women and children. They're babies um, mm -hmm. among the hostages. It's just mind-boggling. It doesn't bear thinking about, does it? Um, and, you know, who knows what mm. kind of mental state they're in at this point. But, um, you know, this is, this is in some ways the kind of uh, low-lying fruit, if you like, um, and... The real tough negotiations, I think, are still lies ahead, and it's unclear um, what Hamas is going to be able to wrest out of uh, Israel in order to release another 200-plus hostages. Indeed. I just want to say now, because sometimes people forget why these things begin. It all began on October the 7th, 1,200 Israelis killed in cross-border raids mounted by Hamas. And those raids, Viv, I mean... Some of the details that I've heard and we've all heard are just incredibly mind-blowingly shocking, aren't you they? You know, in all the incredible devastation that we've witnessed in seven weeks, we have almost forgotten mm. the just astonishing fact of the fact of the invasion into Israel and a completely unprotected Israel. Mm. You know, that it's like a country that we thought had, you know, state-of-the-art security. Yeah. Um, was absolutely vulnerable. Um, so there are so many questions that have yet to be answered by this government. Yeah, well, you, I think what you're going to see... Excuse me one second. We're going to break off to get a word now from the Israeli Defense Force, a representative speaking right now. All came home this evening. 
other hostages from different countries and they passed through the border and their lives are not in danger. Very soon they will arrive to the basis of Rasari where they will meet their families and they uh, will undergo the medical examinations uh, which are necessary in uh, hospitals. The foreign citizens will also uh, meet up with the representatives of their countries and be taken to hospitals. Each of them, each of uh, those hostages who have been brought back are a world in themselves. It was absolutely compulsory to bring them all out and all uh, the leaders have done as much as they could to bring them out and we mustn't forget however that the hostages who were brought home also have uh, there are other prisoners there are injured or deceased people around them and our joy and enthusiasm must uh, be in proportion uh, with uh, this fact it was wonderful to bring them through the border our heart is however still with all the others who are still detained in Gaza and uh, we feel for their families. We still uh, have the obligation and the duty to rescue all those other ones, and this is uh, what we are working on. The process is still ongoing, and until they are all home, we shall keep working hard. And we cannot forget that Hamas is a cruel organization with no scruples and uh, information is uh, hard to obtain. Uh, there's one hostage uh, who was claimed to have been killed, but in the end she was in those who were released. And uh, so disinformation happens and the hostages uh, who were prepared uh, to come out uh, was thanks to uh, troops uh, having uh, been stopped uh, for a while so that uh, the ceasefire could happen. And during this ceasefire, we're going to continue uh, doing our best uh, for the next uh, releases. We are ready on all fronts. Our policy is clear. We are going to uh, counter uh, threats uh, which Israel is facing. We are uh, going to remain vigilant. Uh, we uh, going to obey uh, to our command, a chain of command, and we have reformed 309. We have in, uh, informed 394 families who lost people in this war and contacted them, and thanks to their. Uh, it's thanks to the actions on various levels and fronts that we shall prevail. Are there any questions? Uh, 
we don't know what the next stage will be. Uh, how uh, do you know what's going to happen for the next batch? Daniel, Daniel, uh, Agari there, the spokesperson for the Israeli Defense Forces, as they are known. We lost the translation because it would have been interesting to hear what he was saying about what happens next, because that's the question that we're all asking, isn't it, mm -hmm. Matthias? What happens next? Because we could see this being played in day in, day out, but of course, as we were just discussing with Matthew, they're the, the, the leverage that Hamas has got. That means they might be asking <clears throat> yeah, for more and more. Yeah, that's, uh, the leverage is still with the Hamas, and so there is a... In some way, there is a strategical mismatch because uh, the Israeli government is under pressure from inside, from the family of the hostages. And I guess that the pressure with the first hostages now released is not going to diminish in the in the contrary it's going to uh, it's going to rise because the other families are now waiting for their uh, for for their for their beloved ones and they are uh, and they are under pressure from the uh, from the international scene from the from the from washington from uh, from other partners um, and on the hamas side it is cynical but there is no pressure um, I mean, Palestinians lose their life in the attacks of the Israeli army, but the political damage is with the with the Israelis, uh, with the Israeli side. So this mismatch, where does it lead to, and uh, how is the Hamas going to play to play it in the next because in the, the next couple of days? The, the death toll that the the, the Gaza Health Ministry will put out each day is going up and up and up. It's in excess of fifteen thousand now. How many children? But it's nearly seven thousand children killed. Yeah, but it does not lead to any pressure on Hamas, it leads to further pressure on the Israeli side. So Indeed. that's the, the mismatch in, the, in, the, in this war. That figure of the number of children killed has surely changed the way the world views the conflict and the way the world supports uh, Israel. Joe Biden altering his tone a little bit, sort of asking Israel at one point to actually better aim their attacks. Joe Biden's White House also initially questioning the figure put up by Hamas and then going back and the UN sort of saying this is historically usually quite correct. You know, I, I think the question we're all going to be coming back is this really a pause as was fought over so much mm. the word pause instead of ceasefire. I, as I understand the strategic military documents for Israel is that they understood that they only have a limited number of weeks before international pressure becomes such that they cannot maintain such ferocity in such a densely populated civilian environment. Um, it may well be, as Matthias said, that with um, some hostages released that the other families put on such internal pressure on, we have to admit, a fairly weakened Netanyahu. And Biden has really, behind the scenes, I understand he even made Maps, you're more aware of it than I am, American. <laughs> but uh, I understand that he made uh, a call towards the end of the negotiations to really move things along when it was like how many days, how many hostages, what sort of mm. time. That Our correspondent in, in Tel Aviv this evening has said that Biden's role was, was really important in, in that sense. Mm. It's his, well, he, he you know, has his, his for everyone except for Hamas, yeah. in, who's playing. <laughs> no, we've play. reported that he, he made a call to, uh, to, to Qatar at, mm. at the very... Yes. End of the negotiations to kind of to try and to try and get it over the finish line. 
Um, yeah. As did we. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Who did it first? I don't know. <laughs> well, let's look at it. We'll, we'll have to look at it. Let's, yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I don't know. I hate being a journalist who prognosticates, but uh, well, it's, it's, it's usually not well, our job, is it? This but, may yeah, well yeah. turn into what would effectively be a ceasefire. The the pressure the pressure lines seem to go there. That said, there is scope for things to go wrong in the days ahead. Well, I think you saw. I think the Israeli military again. They put out a message in Arabic. Um, over social media, warning people not to go north, to stay south, to stay away from the northern half of the Gaza Strip, and if you're still there, uh, God forbid to go south. So well, indeed, some, some people have actually been shot going north. Uh, yeah. we, we heard earlier reported okay. on, on AFP that about the, the yeah, tragic right. yeah, back to, to their homes. And, and they've been killed. Speaking you know. to people who say they intended to go back at least to get some stuff from their right. homes, perhaps to come back down, and this is the risk that they... One wonders what's left face. of their homes. That's one of the issues as well, isn't it? Because obviously the extent of what's going on. But that's, that shows, I think, that Israel, after this pause is over, they're, you know, they, they intend to continue waging the war. Okay. Let's, um, unless we have any further thoughts. Well, I mean, I, I, you know, it just occurs to me that we're seven weeks just about mm. into this war. Seven weeks ago, the Eiffel Tower and the Brandenburg Gate were lit up with the Israeli flag. And it's just unimaginable now mm. that that would ever happen. Yeah. Um, it's just, it, it's kind of remarkable how seven weeks ago there was such enormous public mm. sympathy with Israel. Um, and now, of course, um, it's just dramatically different. And, uh, and surely that kind of pressure is going to be just keep building. Thank you. Let's uh, move on to uh, the uh, big story in the Netherlands uh, this week. Um, country with, unless I'm mistaken, um, a reputation as one of the most liberal societies in Europe, if not the world. So why did Dutch voters endorse this week the far-right candidate in the elections? He is Geert Wilders, forgive my pronunciation, once thought of as a niche political act, now seems like he's taken centre stage. Let's hear from Mr. Wilders. We will raise a glass of champagne in a bit, but before we do so, I want to emphasise that yesterday we had a party. Today we drink champagne, but after that we are going to work very hard. We are not doing this for ourselves, but for the dreams of all the Dutch people who voted for us. All the Dutch people who believe that things must change who are fed up with how things were dealt with in the Netherlands in the past years, who believe that the Dutch must be put first again, who want a stricter asylum policy, who want more houses for the Dutch, who want decent health care, who want more money in their wallets instead of throwing billions away. Lots of promises from Herd Wilders, who would like to go first in telling us and explaining why the Netherlands has turned to the far right. It's worth pointing out that I'll pick on you, Matthias. It's, it's, the, the Netherlands has had conservative governments for the past two, two decades at least, so it's not that liberal. 
in spite of its attitudes towards marijuana and various other aspects. It's the, the, the why question, that was the reason why, why I was laughing, the why question comes each and every time when we have a success of these guys. Um, yeah, these let's guys. talk about all of them. <laughs> and, the, and the answer is always uh, distrust, uh, loss of confidence in the, in the established parties, migration. And I think there is something which, is, which seems to be very unpolitical, but there is among the, fr uh, or the the frustration of many of the voters leads to the situation that they think whatever comes next it must be something new and that something new is some kind is, is are these guys so i mean even if themselves get builders is not really new he was there two decades ago um, when he broke up with the Liberal Party. You mentioned the, mm. the, the, the liberal tradition of the, um, of the country. Wilders was a liberal who left the Liberal, who left the liberal Party. So I, I, I don't think that the why question really leads, uh, leads anywhere. There's another thing in it. <laughs> he is still the only party member. His party is a one-person party. Mm. Um, so That, what does it mean? There is no real organization around him. There are no people who are used to govern. Um, so there is now an, a couple of questions um, whether he is, whether he would be, if he gets a majority, if he gets a coalition, if he would be um, fit of all um, to, to, to govern. But all these questions... I mean, there is another. There is another big confusion. There is another big hurdle for European policy. Um, And having seen how successful Brexit was for the United Kingdom, he's actually. <laughs> I don't. He's wanting to push towards an exit. And uh, this is one one of the issues I don't really trust in that he is going to break up with the European Union. But um, so an exit's not a go in, in your opinion. But that Go ahead. <laughs> I mean, but that's one of, I think, one of the reasons for his success and also one of the reasons why Marine Le Pen has been more successful over the years is that she has moved somewhat to the center, particularly on the issue of Europe. Um, you notice in his remarks, he talked about migration policy, asylum policy, and he talked about um, economic concerns, housing costs, um, that are things that are, that really the Dutch are, are really concerned about But they don't support getting out of the EU, getting out of the Eurozone, um, in the same way that French voters do not support getting out of the EU, getting out of the Eurozone. Those were issues that Le Pen historically had um, what was really hurt from during her previous elections. The last election, where she got the biggest percentage of the vote, she's, she no longer said she wanted to withdraw France from the Eurozone. Uh, she softened her anti-EU rhetoric. Um, and that worked. She, and you could say even now that she is perhaps the front runner for to become the next French president in the next election. So, yes, um, the far right is gaining, but also the far right is becoming less, a bit less far right than it used to be, particularly on the issue of Europe. Mark, give us a sense from Brussels. Yes, well, <laughs> People must be, I'm, I'm must be putting exactly, down their, exactly their Brussels beers Brussels. and mm. well, thinking, no, I mean, what that's going on? What a growing camp of governments or wannabe governments. I mean, there's still no mm. guarantee that uh, mm. builders will actually get there. I mean, it looks to be a very difficult path for him to get to power, despite being the biggest single party. But, you know, we've now got Italy, uh, Slovakia, Hungary, I mean, Poland flipped the other Spain. way. Great. Mm. Um, and it's rising in France, in mm. Germany. 
So, you know, they may not want to leave the EU, but the EU is going to be coloured, is going to be changed from within the tent, perhaps, by a growing <sighs> axis within. You know, that, that is perhaps the danger, and that'll perhaps be, you know, my Brussels point of view, perhaps going to be realised in seven months' time when there are EU elections, when we really get to see the extent of this. But I, I think on top of that, well, firstly, just let's do a little bit of a reality check here. There are multiple parties in this little country of mm -hmm. the Netherlands, and Wilder's got 25% mm -hmm. or so. So it's not like he swept the board. Um, and the other thing is it was very much, as I understood it, rooted in kind of out of the cities. Mm -hmm. There's a real kind of urban-rural divide here as there is in so many countries, including the US. Mm. And so you have this kind of populist appeal to those who feel like they've been left behind in this kind of technocratic, sophisticated EU machine. They don't sort of see a place for themselves. And that is a kind of a legitimate concern and something that Eurocrats should be able to address. Indeed, and Viktor Orban hailing the winds of change. Right, from, exactly. fr from his seat in Budapest. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which kind of makes one think, what would those winds bring? Do we see Europe moving along the lines of a kind of sweep of the far right? Matthias, what, what, do you, what sense do you get from this? The, <clears throat> first and foremost, I, I see confusion. Um, the, European, the European Union and European politics was used to rule from the centre from two big center forces, center left, center right. And uh, this is gone. Um, this is gone in so many countries, and this is gone on the European scene. I, uh, I mean, now, the last, five, uh, the last five years, the outgoing European Parliament has a majority of three parties still. Um, but... I mean, this is this is the main tendency. I don't see I don't see a national nationalist takeover in Europe and all of Europe um, tomorrow or the day after. But it becomes more and more difficult to rule, be it in the countries, be it on the be it on the level of the European Union, and this, and then we are in a in a, in a vicious circle because uh, this leads to more frustration and to more distrust in the system, and it plays in the cards of, uh, of those who want to, who want to, those who profit, uh, obviously. So, so the more people are fed up, the more they see the standard yeah. of living yeah. decrease, yeah. the more their opportunities are restricted, the more they turn to extreme alternatives. That's, that's the message. And, and, and once again, Wilder started 10, 15 years ago, as Marine Le Pen started 10, 15 years ago. I, I can recall it, reporting it on it is an, here. It is like an accident in slow motion. You, sure. you can see it coming, like now in France. You can see it coming. Sleepwalking into a Sleepwalking harsh reality, yeah. which few of us say would happen, but it is happening. Yeah. Argentina, let's go there, because this is the second part of our far-right focus, if you like. Argentina uh, has, in its not-too-distant past, uh, been peppered with the worst of far-right extremism. 
uh, many still bearing the scars, physical and mental, it has to be said, uh, of the military junta that fell only after losing the Falklands War back in 1982. Well, memories of uh, voters are clearly getting shorter as they voted in this gentleman, uh, on a far-right candidate. He calls himself an anarcho-capitalist. I'll get Matthew's take on that in a second. He's called Javier Millet. Uh, former, among other things, he's got many different aspects to his character, a former singer in a Rolling Stones tribute band. Question is, can he give the Argentinian voters satisfaction? Well, Matthew, an anarcho-capitalist. What's your take on that? An anarcho-capitalist. I, I don't know what that means exactly. Neither do I. But, <laughs> but um, I think he is just a, a, a liberal, an extreme liberal, uh, okay. economically speaking. Um, I think he has called for adopting the dollar yeah. um, in Argentina's economy. Uh, which I, I was reading online is like uh, dropping a nuclear bomb on a country to cure COVID. Um, so it's like, a, yes, Argentina has an inflation problem. Um, adopting a completely foreign currency over which you have no control is, most economists would say, is a terrible idea. Um, you'd lose all control over your monetary policy. Uh, you're basically allowing the U.S. Federal Reserve to dictate your monetary policy. Um, it's true also when you're pegging your currency, but um, it's it's a more extreme step when you adopt the dollar. Uh, he's also called for, I think, eliminating most ministries in the um, Argentinian government. So he's, I, I don't think anarcho-capitalist is the right th word. I think he's just uh, an extreme liberal. Um, try, he's called for, I think, cutting the, the government budget drastically as well. Um, I think if you ask most economists, these they would say that these are not the answers to Argentina's economic problems. Um, Inflation's 142%. That's just one thing to throw into this discussion to make people at home realize, or wherever you're watching, of course, how difficult life is for people in Argentina. Right, right. And yeah, it's been a, it's been a problem uh, for, for a long time, and they, you know, they've had the... the pegged to their currency has been pegged to the dollar and then that peg has been abandoned uh, repeatedly over the years because it, it can't hold. Um, but, you know, again, I go back to the analogy of, you know, using, adopting the dollar would be like uh, dropping a, a nuclear bomb on the Argentinian. So his, his economic uh, outlook is a bit suspect. Again, that from Matthew, his approach towards women's rights is, is, is well, he's talking about banning abortion. That's one thing. I'll, I'll turn to you, Vivian, as a woman. When he's saying this about a woman's choice... It is not a good thing. It well, is not a good thing. Their neighbours to the north of, you know, yeah. I mean, not their neighbours, but the US, sure. uh, yeah. you know, clearly Same doesn't uh, have much of a leg to stand on when talking about these abortion rights. But, um, yeah, I mean, it is, you know, we came to see, I think, Argentina in recent years as being this kind of new style Latin American country sort of emerging mm. from dictatorship becoming this kind of regional power. And I think one forgets that there were many years in which they really did suffer incredible economic uh, just dysfunction, social dysfunction, from which in some ways they are still suffering the after effects. And how does a, a guy who was a Mick Jagger impersonator become the president, Mark? I mean, this is, I mean, 
call me old-fashioned, but I'd like my politicians to be a little bit more... Well, have some gravitas, I suppose, but this is a whole different ballgame, isn't it? Well, I, I love the Bill Clinton days of playing the saxophone and stuff, but I won't go the music route. I will. I lived for a while in Brazil, and I can see the way... the Latin, And went around Latin America a lot. And there's already like a shadow dollarization in many countries where you can pay in US dollars for anything and sometimes you're expected to. There is Panama and Ecuador that do have dollar economies mm. that mm. have totally, you know, given their financial sovereignty over to the US for everything they have to do. Smaller countries, admittedly. Argentina, you know, a bit like Venezuela and so on. It used to be this grand nation that filled imaginations and you'd go there for balls and it was great and these people still remember these glory days and it's brazil next door which has got the you know an, an economy that's far stronger and they've lived 20 years with this that what they defaulted around the turn of the century they had the soft peg nothing has worked and they're going to the shops and they they're getting to a point where they want to buy individual grapes. They can't even buy the things themselves. The prices go up every two days, every three days. The, the butchers don't even mark the prices on the boards out the front anymore because it just changes so fast. People can't eat. I mean, it's a place known for meat, prime cuts of meat. Sure. The people who live there can't afford to buy that Argentine steaks that we, we love. So I can understand a, a disgust, a, a, a desire among a population to look for a simple solution out. This is a simple solution. It's been floated by him before and by other countries in Latin America, and they've latched onto it. Uh, you know, from what I understand, and people with economics degrees will correct me on this, but it's almost impossible. You need a massive dollar buffer to even go to dollarization, which would mean massive loans, which no one's going to give Argentina. Mm. So I don't see a feasible path to it happening. Mm. Will he politically drop the rhetoric, though? Matthias, that's and, the and question. And go ahead, <clears throat> sir. Go ahead. And beside the, the economic... Uh outcome or the economic logic, there's a contradiction in the symbolic logic because if the idea is to make Argentina great again, that's not his words, but that's the, that's the program, it's, it's um, astonishing to give up uh, a symbol of the national sovereignty, um, which, which is a currency, which is a currency. Um, so... I don't understand too much uh, about uh, Latin American I mean, and Argentinian Already, politics. as journalists, we can't call him a nationalist, right? If he no, wants no, no, to no. take on the dollar. So mm -hmm. we can't put him in the same bucket mm -hmm. as mm -hmm. Wilders. Sure. And, you know, put these, these tags that are flying around from him, mm -hmm. we don't understand them or they don't apply. So we're still searching for a way to describe what he is. There's something they have in common. Uh, I, I guess that's the libertarian approach to economy. That's Wilders as well. But that's by, by sign. You're, you're right. He's not a... But what is he then? What is he then if he's not a nationalist? If, if he's not a nationalist, nationalist, so radical libertarian. Ra radical libertarian. Radical is a, libertarian. Is a pretty good yeah, okay. label for him. Um, I don't know if you would call the, the adopting the dollar, um, importing the dollar, a libertarian position or not. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I would ask: Has it worked for the other countries in in Latin America? Um, yes, Pan the Panama is more or less an oasis of stability in Central America. Yeah, where I yeah. worked for a while. Yeah, uh, Ecuador has problems. We're seeing problems occurring in Argentina as well, mm -hmm. which also feeds into electoral outcomes. Is um, gang violence, which used to be something that you would find in Central America, a region I also know well, and Brazil, I have to say, is spreading. I mean, it's now a problem in Argentina as well. So obviously the economy has got to be foremost in everybody's mind. And perhaps that's what's in common with, with Wilders, is an electorate that is 
feeling that they need a short-term solution to this economic squeeze that we're going, which is also coupled with this climate gloom and doom, we very much feel like our horizon perhaps is only two or three years, whereas sort of the, the idealism of globalism, where the European Union, the good old days and all that, we were looking 10 or 15 years of prosperity. Maybe electorates now are just looking for a short-term solution for the next two or three years to get by and then <coughs> reassess. Maybe. And that's a, that. But that's an interesting yeah. question, be it in the Netherlands, be it in Argentina, whether the voters, those who voted for Milay or those who voted for Wilders, if they really believe that they will that they will have a solution or is it just every all the others went wrong all the others failed so now we're trying something radical new radical new but maybe not a solution we will wait and see what happens we've got very little time left but we need to talk about open uh, open ai taking on the aspect of a soap opera artificial intelligence sam altman in charge one minute sack the next brought back the next who knows what's going on, but we know that behind all of that is something that could clearly change our lives beyond all recognition. And the panel here, your thoughts on open AI, on artificial intelligence, about what's been happening. Matthew, can I ask you to kick us off? Um, well, it's amazing um, the attention that is now being paid to this company. It's a relatively small company. Yeah. Um, didn't exist that long ago. Uh, and has now been front the the leadership fight has been front page headlines for for weeks now, and um, I think it's it's an indication of just how quickly it's grown, how many people use Chat GPT in their in their daily lives. Um, to, for Do you work. use it? I actually don't. Um, I don't use it. I, maybe I should. But I don't use it to write my stories. I will not use it to write my stories. <laughs> but I know a lot of other people do. Um, maybe I, I could become a much more efficient journalist if I started using it. Um, but I think it has settled into every nook and corner of uh, certainly the American economy and probably in Europe and around the world. So it's it's very important. And I think the the debate. I mean. The, it's very unclear what happened, um, but I think from some of the reporting that, that we've done, among others, is that um, there was a concern amongst the board that Sam Altman had become uh, too concerned about, the, um, about making money from this venture. And it has this very peculiar corporate structure where it's overseen by a foundation that is not supposed to be concerned about the economic prospects of the company and only about whether AI is going to destroy, and the products that, that OpenAI makes, is going to destroy humanity and turn us all into paperclips, basically. Um, so there, there, the, uh, the reporting was that there was two, <laughs> there, that he was too concerned about making money. They were not. They wanted to kind of keep the the mission, you know, the safety mission of the company. There was a clash over that, supposedly. But really, we, we don't know exactly what happened. We'll never find out. Viv, yeah. please. Well, I'm not an AI expert, but I, did ask, I did ask ChatGPT what it <laughs> thought. And one <laughs> question I asked is, is AI dangerous? So... It says AI itself is not inherently dangerous, but like any powerful technology, its application can pose risks if not used responsibly, etc., etc. So you see, I mean, we could do, in fact, this whole show or but to chat GPT. <laughs> to, get, to, you know, to get that answer, though. They have to they have to train it and put all these guardrails into the software so it doesn't spit out 
um, offensive and basically so it doesn't tell the truth maybe <laughs> um, that it that it's only trained on on certain types of um, content that it gets from the internet um, so it's not it's oh, changing yeah it has. Open no, no, no. that part yeah. is changing that's what we've been writing about chat open ai up to now something that came out with the sam altman thing was something called qstar that open ai is working on which is uh uh, what do they call it? So it's a general artificial intelligence. It's basically this is a step towards uh, making artificial intelligence smarter than humans. Um, we think they're already there. This is another level up that they're already working up. It's called QSTAR, Q asterisk, actually. What's interesting is we were thinking about AI basically taking this big pool of internet knowledge and reformulating it, but basically copying it. What this seems to have done, and it's just reporting the last couple of days, is that it, this AI, this Q-star, has taken a mathematical problem that hasn't been presented with before, a version of maths it has not seen before, and it's solved it. So it's, being, it, it, it's moving beyond a level that we have been reporting on for, for this general artificial intelligence to a new level. Now, this sounds pretty boring, a bit of maths and no one, but It sounds think, like it's moving about, faster than think, we are, which is think interesting. Think the you applications know. beyond. If AI can actually start approaching scenarios that it hasn't been trained on but can apply a whole lot of other general intelligence... Fascinating to, stuff. This, this may be part of the... Final comment, Matthias, very Final quickly. Comment. Final comment. I, I don't have to, uh, to add any, anything. It's, <laughs> it's obvious that there are so many questions uh, on what does it mean morally, politically, socially. So, Matthias, thank you. Viv, thank you. Matthew, thank you. Mark, thank you all for joining us. Thank you for watching. Please stay with us here on France 24. We continue to bring you the news and the analysis. <laughs>